Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and testimony and it's brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit. This show is sponsored by Premier Christianity Magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication. If you would like a free sample copy to check out the latest issue, including news, reviews, features and so much more, then simply go to our website, premierchristianity.com dot com forward slash free sample type your details in and we will happily send you a free copy of our latest issue but today here on premier christian radio you've joined us for the profile and i'm delighted to say i'm speaking to the author teacher activist and leadership coach mark scandrat mark is also part of nine beats collective a global project exploring the beatitudes as a 21st century vocabulary for the living way of Jesus. He lives with his wife, Lisa, and their three children in San Francisco, and he joins me right here, right now, in London. Mark, welcome, not only to the show, but welcome to the UK. Hey, it's great to be with you, Sam. You've flown in, you said, just yesterday from yes. San Francisco, and I've done that trip once, and I know the jet lag is pretty serious. So what time is it for you? Uh, I don't know, 2.44 a.m.? Wow. But I've, I've managed to get two runs in along the river already amazing along the river thames yeah it's great i love it it is great i've as someone who has run along that same path before i can highly recommend it as a route it's quite something world class it is um how long have you been based in san francisco 21 years what's it like as a city for those who haven't been there before what are the unique challenges of ministering working living in somewhere like san francisco i mean san francisco is beautiful it's in a lot of uh it's in a lot of films it's very compact. It's not a it's not a huge city, but it's it's very dense, and so it's very walkable. Um, historically, it's been very diverse, um, racially and socioeconomically. And um, for the United States, it's been considered a more post Christian environment. Only about two percent of the population participates in any kind of organized religion. Mm. Uh, so it's an interesting place yeah. to be working out faith. So it's probably not the easiest place in America to be working out a Christian faith, given the the culture of it. What's made you stick around for so long? Uh, I feel like it, there might be a counterintuitive narrative here. Um, sometimes if you're around too many people who think like you, you get lazy mm. and complacent. And so I, we found it to be a very exciting and vibrant place to be working out our faith because you have many people around you who are asking questions and ch- you know challenging uh, us to really live more deeply into the way of Jesus. Well, here on the show, we always like to go back to the beginning, hear about someone's early life growing wow. up. So tell me a bit about childhood, <laughs> your parents, where were you, all that good stuff. Yeah. Well, a few years ago, I found out I was conceived in Pamplona, Spain. Wow. Um, j- just a month before the running of the Bulls. Born in Germany on a U.S. military base and grew up in the Midwest of the United States. But I was from a military family. So we lived in Chicago, Minneapolis, South Dakota. I graduated from high school in Alabama. And my parents also lived in New York and San Francisco and Texas. So we've been around the United States. That's quite quite a lot of traveling. (laughs) And you still do a lot of traveling. So I guess, do do you kind of attribute that to some of your childhood growing up, that your parents were quite outward looking and willing to move around? Maybe so, that that it was, I had to learn to make friends and um, connect in a lot of different places. Yeah. And Um, what about um, faith? Was was faith there right from the beginning? Yeah. Um, My my parents were in kind of a spiritual renewal when I was very young. And so I, um, in fact, when I was uh, just a couple years old, they intentionally moved into an 
an at-risk urban neighborhood and lived in a church vicarage. And um, so I remember as a kid, my parents really trying to live out their faith in some um, radical and um, connecting ways. Wow. Whereabouts was that? Mm -hmm. In Minneapolis. In Minneapolis. What came next? University? Yeah, went to university. Um, actually, my my kind of faith story started uh, when I was in middle school. Right. And um, I, I was never what I would consider to be a, a good church kid. I uh, didn't necessarily enjoy Sunday school or worship services, but um, I was not paying attention as usual when uh, I was 12 years old and just sort of medit- just sort of thinking, wow, why am I here? And if there's a, if there is a God, the, then the creator probably has something to say about the best way for me to live life. Mm. And so I whispered a prayer and said, hey, I want, I want to find out what your way is. And from there started reading the gospels and um, felt something really alive mm. Uh, awakening in me as I looked at how Jesus lived and what he taught. Mm. And um, it was a very special time for me of kind of awakening yeah. to that. Yeah. That's really interesting what you say about um, not necessarily connecting with the way church was done, but still having a very real and live faith yeah. in Jesus. I guess there's plenty of people have a similar story to that, have, have struggled with, for whatever reason, with church or organized religion, organized churches, they, they've experienced it, but still have a a very strong and real faith. Yeah. Um, h- how have things changed since then with your relationship with church and Sunday services and, and all that yeah, sort of stuff? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I'm grateful that I had some, I had parents that I could dialogue with about some of those struggles. And part, part of what made me discontent with church as usual was seeing my parents and how they lived and the more radical choices that they were making um, it wasn't just a Sunday thing for my family. Uh, one of my most distinct memories as a very young person was uh, uh, coming home one day and there was an older man who smelled like alcohol sitting in our kitchen. Mm-hmm. And my dad had found this guy, um, passed out in a ditch and helped him, helped him out. And he became our uncle Leroy. Right. And that's one thing I really appreciated about my parents is that they weren't just telling me this is what this is what we sh- you should believe but i was seeing something vital in the way yeah. that they were living their lives yeah. and um that cre- i think maybe allowed for that hunger to come up in me that mm. um christianity is so much more than a than a doctrinal system or an institution it's a it's a way of life that we're invited into mm. um, that's very very real and alive yeah um but i can remember um, talking with my dad as a teenager and saying, I, I don't get it, dad. We, we, back in the day, we used to dress up to go to church on Sunday. I don't know if people still do that, but um, I said, we dress up in our best clothes. We sit in this very expensive building and we're listening to stories about a homeless rabbi from the first century. Something's, so something's off here. And I think that um, it's very easy for this radical message of Jesus to become domesticated. Mm-hmm. It's it's basically what human beings do. And so I've been trying since that time to stay open to letting th- that homeless rabbi be my be yeah. my teacher and my yeah. my guide. And th- like you say, that has that has driven a huge amount of your ministry ever since in the yeah. books that you've written and the speaking that you've done. That's been the, the message that we've become, I guess, quite comfortable Western Christians, churches in some ways, and we've got to remember um, that, you know, God doesn't call us to comfortable living, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I think that it is a life-giving way, so I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to give the impression that it's really, you know, you got to go hardcore and it's going to be miserable. I think that it's actually a freer and lighter way to let the life and teachings of Jesus shape us more mm. than the messages that we get from yeah. uh, our culture or our, our sort of internal default positions. Um, but it is it is distinctive. Yes. So um, 
was was all of that sort of thinking there from quite an early age and teenage years you know having seen your parents reaching out and taking in homeless people and realizing that this is a as you say a, a, a Jewish rabbi who we follow and we're supposed to uh, emulate what he does was all that that kind of there from an early age from from teenage years I would say yeah the seeds of it were were really there and um I know that for me, I felt most alive when I was taking risks to try and put the teachings of Jesus into mm. practice. Yeah. And um, I, I just felt something really waking up in me when I'd look at the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount or other parts of the Gospels and then try and do something with mm. it. Um, that's when it came yeah. most alive. To so me. have there been moments since where you've had any um, crisis of faith or any serious doubts or has it kind of been plain sailing yeah i would say um i feel like i've had about six or eight conversions okay along the way um you know you start out in your faith journey with one one part of the gospel connecting with you and so my first conversion was when i was three years old and i heard the message that uh, I'm separated from God, and um, and that Jesus has made a way through His sacrifice to be reconciled, and um, and so I said that classic sinner's prayer, and um, uh, that that was the beginning, which I, I think is often many people's experience, but that in itself didn't give me a hunger to seek after. A relationship with God. It was more of a transaction. And then at 12 or 13, I was like, there's, there's, this is a way of life, a good way of life I'm being invited into. Maybe another conversion was the role of the Holy Spirit as a, a guide and teacher and a source of power in my life. Um, I think another one was realizing that we're, we're made for relationship. And so, um, so I, I, I sort of discovered this reading the Psalms that God desires this intimacy and c- connection with us. Um, and a, another conversion was to the kingdom and to justice, mm-hmm. I think, looking at the thread of of the kingdom and justice seeking in the Gospels and uh, in, the, in the books of the prophets and saying, I, uh, God cares about all aspects of life. Mm-hmm. I'm being invited to care about everything that... Mm-hmm the creator cares about. But I would say there was a, a pretty important crisis when I was 25 or 26, where I'd been a pastor already for four or five years, and for four or five years before that, worked in Christian ministry. And um, I, uh, I'm, I, I would say I grew up mostly in the Christian bubble. And so to but I started to get out of it, part of, partly because I f- felt some conviction, like mm-hmm. I, I need to be finding out what life is like for others. And if I'm to bear witness to God's reality, then um, I need to be relating to people outside of my bubble. And so many people from outside the bubble said uh, things to the effect to me like, I don't, I don't know what the big deal is about your f- faith. It doesn't seem to make life different or better. Right. Than yeah. the rest of us, yeah. <laughs> you're just religious. You just listen to different music and go somewhere else on Sunday mornings. Right. But yeah. are, I don't feel like you're living at a whole other level here. And I kind of started to realize my faith has been largely an intellectual exercise. I've patted myself on the back for saying I believe the right things. I'm I'm part of the group that has the truth, but. Is it really transforming me? Is it really alive for me? And many people go through, I think, a similar sort of thing. In um, uh, sometimes it's called a deconstruction, and um, it's a necessary part of of um, faith maturity. Um, first, first we we kind of have simple beliefs as kids, and then um, if you come to faith as a teenager, you're like, oh, I picked the right group, and I'm part of the right the right uh, faith path. But if you keep going, some of that starts to fall apart and you, and you realize there's more paradox, there's more mystery. There's things we, we wanted to be about everything we knew that was sure, but actually, you know, you can't tame Mm -hmm. the Holy spirit or the nature of the creator of the universe. But it was dramatic for me 
it felt like I was losing my faith yeah. and things were falling I've apart. heard other people say exactly the same thing when they've had deconstruction experiences. It can be very scary, very unsettling, yeah. very difficult. And yet, as you say, you come through it and you reconstruct. And at the yeah. end of it, your faith does look quite different. And yet it is more, there's more life to it. So, so how yeah. did your faith look different on the other side of that once you'd reconstructed? What, what, yeah. what changed? And, and I guess what hadn't changed as well, you know? Let me say first, I think one of the one of the challenges to going through that deconstruction is that our Christian communities are often very norming. So if someone starts to have doubts or questions or struggles, someone either subtly or directly says, "You're not thinking like us anymore," or or. I don't think you're part of us anymore. Yeah. And that might be, I know at least in my experience, might have been 50% of the difficulty mm. was the rejection I felt from the people uh, that I journeyed with closest who were uncomfortable right. with the questions that I was asking. So I like to go out of my way to tell people uh, these days, you know, when you have doubts and when you struggle, you're in good company with Israel, which means those who wrestle with God, um, and with the writers of the Psalms who were were asking God, mm. "Where are you? Have you fallen asleep? Why why do why do I feel so abandoned?" Yeah. Um, so, I'd like to th- I, I I would say, like, and I when I see other, I'd like to I'd like to think there might be an elegant way through a deconstruction, but I'm not. <laughs> I think it's just hard. Yeah. <laughs> And if, there, if there is one, then not many people seem to have found it. <laughs> yeah, and I think I have some friends who went through it and never found their way back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think what allowed me to go through it and come out the other side was that um, my parents had exposed me to practical Christianity. So it wasn't just it wasn't just that we went to church or that we had these beliefs, but I was seeing the benefit of that playing out in their lives, mm. the fruit of it. Mm. And you can't walk away from that kind of tangible mm. goodness. Mm. Um, and so I thought there is there is something deeper here um, that that I'm drawn to. Uh, one, some words that I put around it that, that I find helpful, I might be borrowing this from a friend of mine, Richard Rohr, is that we, um, hopefully we learn to transcend and include. So instead of going, that's how I was a Christian before, that's how I saw faith, and all that's wrong, now I'm into this. It it might be kinder and an easier way through to say, here's a lot of different ways I've seen what it means to have a relationship with God, and I'm grateful for all the, thi- the steps on the journey, mm. and here's where I'm at now. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what came next after deconstruction and reconstruction? Yeah, well, part of that was uh, moving to San Francisco. Um, I'd been a pastor in the Midwest, and I probably came to Christian leadership pretty young. Yeah. At 24, I yeah. was the pastor of a church of about 500 people. Right. And um, I did my best to make uh, to share relevant messages mm-hmm. on Sunday, multiple services. And I remember my best friend falling asleep on the third row during one of my sermons. <laughs> oh dear. And I thought, what are we doing here? <laughs> like I spent 15, 20 hours studying scripture, yeah. doing ex- exegetical work. This is the thing that people don't often appreciate when they complain about long sermons yeah. or boring sermons. Like, do you realize how many hours that person put into their sermon? I'd like and- to think that mine weren't even boring. <laughs> But I'm I sure thought, they weren't. I'm sure they were great. But I just, I just mean that there isn't always that understanding, is there? Because yeah. I think a lot of people turn up to church and they say, they see the pastor up there and think, oh, okay, he's just sort of speaking yeah. off the top of his head. And maybe right. maybe some are, but yeah. the majority, like you say, have spent hours and yeah. hours studying for that sermon. So I thought we have a contract here, and I'm interested in inter- interrogating that contract because the question is is the way we're doing church and doing discipleship helping us to live in the aliveness of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring us? And um, if my best friend's falling asleep during my sermons, (laughs) and then people would come through the line afterwards, dutifully shake my hand, 
And sometimes even during the message, I would say, this is really important. I'm talking about real things here. This should change how we live our lives and trying to get, get that point across. Right. But the medium is the message. So, um, that put me on a journey to say, could we've got to find ways or could we find ways to make our faith connect more with real life? Mm. And my sense about my experience of discipleship, although I'm grateful for it, I think it had been shaped in a Western um, Hellenistic Greek influenced mm-hmm. uh, way. And three things tended to characterize it. One is it tended to be individualistic. Um, me and my relationship with God. It tended to be information driven. Like I had this idea when I was young that I think is pretty common. If I hear enough sermons, if I study the scriptures enough, if I really nerd out and start reading theology, if I, if nowadays it would be if I listen to enough podcasts, suddenly enlightenment will come and I will be magically transformed into Christ-likeness through the information. And um, I've become skeptical that information by itself doesn't lead to transformation. And this is why at the beginning, end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice mm-hmm. is wise. Uh, and then a th- maybe a third characteristic of, that I think shaped my early discipleship is it tended to be disconnected from everyday life. And I would even maybe say dishonest mm. about the real stuff of life. Um, in I, I travel a lot throughout the world, and one characteristic in all the different kinds of churches that I visit that might just be basic sociology is that we tend to want to show our best face to one another, and that sometimes means covering up mm. the real struggles that we have in our lives. Yeah. So if you go 20th century um, limited discipleship was individualistic, information driven, and disconnected from everyday life. Mm-hmm. Well, how did Jesus make disciples? And could we learn yeah. to do it that way? And for him, it wasn't just about individuals, it was about community. Yes, yeah. It wasn't just about information, it was about inviting people into risk-taking experiments mm-hmm. with him. And it, he was ruthlessly, I think, honest about mm. everyday life. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I've, I've heard um, some even megachurch pastors, um, not just megachurch pastors, but, but, but pastors of certainly big churches be quite open and honest about this in the past and say, yeah, if, if I'm really honest, the, the proper discipleship that happens doesn't happen on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. It happens in our small groups because that's yeah. where people tend to be more honest about what's yeah. really going on and where you can challenge people and how they're living and you can kind of live in community a little bit better in a, in a smaller group. Yeah. Um, because I imagine some people might hear what you're saying about preaching and say, oh, d- does that mean we just throw right. out preaching completely on a Sunday? It's not... It's not adequate by itself. You know, there needs to be some space where you can work it out um, with other people in relationship with that honesty. So that's sort of led us to the kind of work that we've done in San Francisco, which we, in the beginning, sort of nicknamed the Jesus Dojo. (laughs) And maybe there's a little bit of cultural appropriation in there. But Is this the karate thing? Dojo means place of the way. Okay. And so the sense I was getting, especially if you dive into like kind of Jewish studies of, of uh, the context of Jesus mm-hmm. and his ministry, uh, a first century rabbi, you listen to their words, but you also paid attention to what they did. Yeah. And the rabbi gave you, took you on adventures and gave you instructions to, to work, work things out. And so um, my sense was, well, we would experience more life and vitality in our spiritual lives and more impact in the world if we took an approach that was more like that rabbi-apprentice mm. yes. model. Yeah. And so think about the expectations. If you go to a, if you go to a college lecture, mm-hmm. your job is to t- sit and take notes and stay awake. But if you're in a, a Pilates class, circuit training at a gym, and you showed up with a notepad, you're going to get kicked out. <laughs> hey, we're doing the thing here. 
And I, I, Jesus has a thing he's inviting us into, how to live life in, in God's kingdom. Mm. And so it's like, yeah, show up with your workout clothes on because we're going to learn how to forgive. We're going to learn how to love our enemies. We're going to ha- uh, learn how to overcome lust. Mm. We're going to learn how to go from, a, from greediness to yeah. contentment and yeah. gratitude. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales in conversation today with Mark Scandra. You can hear the rest of our conversation coming up right after this. Premier Christianity magazine. In this month's issue, we invite leading scholars to unpack the gospel accounts of Jesus's birth and explain why we can have confidence in these stories. Plus, we speak with the indomitable Anne Widdicombe ahead of the general election and explore our alternative Christmas gift guide with ethical and sustainable gifts for all budgets. All this and more in December's issue. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian magazine. And if you would like a free copy of our latest issue, we will send one to you. Why not head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply type in your address and we'll send you the latest copy of the magazine absolutely free. No strings attached. We just want you to have a look at it. And if you like it, then you can, of course, then take out a subscription and receive it every single month through your letterbox. My guest today, right here on The Profile, is Mark Scandrat. Mark is a teacher, an author, an activist, and so much more. And we're having a really fascinating in-depth discussion today on topics including what is the gospel, how we live out our Christian faith practically, and the state of the church, both in the UK and worldwide. It's a fascinating conversation. I do hope you're enjoying it, and there's lots more great stuff to come. So without any further ado, let's listen in to the second part of my conversation with Mark Scandrat. I'd love to see how this kind of plays out practically. So tell me a bit about what church looks like for you now. Because that would help us, I think, understand, Mm -hmm. okay, what does it mean to go from sitting in a lecture to the dojo idea? So I'll give you, um, this is sort of an origin story. Um, I was, and actually, just to go back to your earlier question, what got me over my deconstruction, this was it. Right, okay. Moving from college lecture hall to karate studio. and many of my friends were going through a similar sort of deconstruction. And I said, I wrote, uh, I, I wrote a note to a group of friends and I said, I know a lot of us are struggling in our faith. Uh, we, we long for more or something different. What if we let Jesus be our rabbi? And there were things he gave, he told his disciples to do that revealed the reality of the kingdom. And so I'm proposing an experiment. And, um, or we are, it was a group of friends. And I said, um, what if a group of us over the next two months tried to obey what Jesus had to say about how we live with our money and possessions? And what he said was, sell your possessions and give to the poor. So what we're proposing is that a group of us would sell or give away half of our belongings uh, and use those proceeds to help the poorest people in the world. And... So I wondered, would anybody be up for this? I thought maybe just a couple of people. Uh, but it ended up that we had 30 friends that wanted to try and do this. And it wasn't that doing this was gonna was something that we could do that would pat ourselves on the back or go, we're better than other people. Um, it was more an experiment in saying, why would Jesus have said something like that? And the only way we're going to figure that out is by trying to do it, not just by intellectualizing about it. And so the experiment just revealed a lot of our heart motives. Why do I tend to be possessive? Why do I buy more things than I need? Yeah. Um, or even, I guess, as you're looking through your possessions, why is it that I really don't want to sell this one? Yeah, exactly. Why is this so precious to me, like Gollum's ring? <laughs> and, um, and in that group, we were able to seller give away half of about half of our possessions. Yeah. We ended up sharing more personally about our financial lives, mm-hmm. what our debts and spending habits were. Um, it gave us a chance to really care for one another. And people ended up 
moving in with uh, having people come and live with them and actually sharing possessions with each other and taking new risks um, to go public with our faith. And so from that, I was like, this is how I want to do church from now on. And so um, every couple of months, we'd look at some teaching of Jesus and then together say, why is this hard for us? What it, where, what's Jesus trying to help us with here? And then we do an experiment together. So is, does that mean church is no longer a kind of Sunday thing for you? Uh, for me, it's more about those experiments and group. I, uh, In my younger, more strident years, I, if, if we'd had this interview 15 years ago, I would have said, you have to quit how you do church, and then we're all going to get into this training school with Jesus. And uh, I wouldn't say that anymore. Okay. I think it's – I think – Whatever the form is that um, Christians choose to gather in, it's important to figure out how do we get it down to helping each other practice. Yeah, yeah. And so um, the practical application element has to has to be there. It's interesting. There's there's a group in in this country you may be aware of, <clears throat> London um, Institute of Contemporary Christianity, okay. and they for a long time have been talking about how the average sermon in, in this country will have very little practical application for 90% of a person's life mm. because what tends to happen with a lot of sermons it's about how to get more out of your bible reading or how to yeah. pray more yeah. think, well most people spend most of their time in work um and and work being quite broadly defined work yeah. could be anything from working for a FTSE 100 company to being a stay-at-home mum and, and anything in between that's yeah. all work it's all stuff you do outside of a sunday morning or a yeah. wednesday evening small group at church yeah. and just i've been challenging the church on this actually for for decades now mm-hmm. we need to be more practical yeah. in our in our teaching so it's interesting to, to hear you say something quite quite similar to that really yeah. I mean, my, my question is how have we reached a point where in so many of our churches the teaching is not practical and it's mm. not um, arguably directly following the, the words of Jesus when it comes to things like mm-hmm. selling your possessions and giving money. We don't seem to take Jesus so literally in some of that yeah. and a lot of the teaching it isn't always pra- ha- practical. So how have we reached a point as a Western, because I think it is a Western church yeah. thing, um, certainly the church context I've been involved I mean, in where it isn't always yeah, so practical. I, mean, so I, th- I think broadly historically we could we could blame some of this on Constantine okay or what happened in the sense that Christianity or the the way of Jesus in the um, was this house to house life on life phenomenon and then when it was legalized and brought into the Roman Empire it necessarily became more institutionalized so it was more about believing the right things and um, sometimes at, at the end of a sword being threatened, right. you know, will you believe this or not? And, um, and the church seeing itself as the gatekeepers of the correct thought. Mm. And, um, and on another angle, um, what Jesus invites us into is confronting. I mean, it's it's a it's a easy light yoke. It's it's the rest for our souls. Mm. But we have. But Jesus is asking us to give up our ideas about what life is about, our agendas, to come after him and die, and um, and to say yes to something new. So, Sermon on the Mount structure. You have heard that it was said, but mm. I tell you, he's saying, I want you to dream up your whole life again, and imagine what it's like to live with me walking with me in this mm. and so it that's um that's meddling mm. with our yes our stasis right and so it's just easier to stay with mm. ideas mm. and not mess with how we actually yes. yeah. live our lives yeah. but i think the life is really in that and i've uh, i actually spend a lot of time engaging with churches of all all sizes and shapes and i've been experimenting the last five or six years with how could we even make the Sunday morning gathering and the message something that's more practical? Mm, yeah. So I might start off by uh, getting up and saying, "Here's here's my top five things I worry about that I feel stress and anxiety about in my life," and then I'll invite them 
I want you to write down five things that you feel stress or feel worry and anxiety about. And surprisingly, everybody has a list. (laughs) (laughs) And and then I'll say, Jesus says, don't worry. Suggesting the possibility that you and I could live lives that are largely free of worry and anxiety. Imagine, what would that be like? Is that a life you would like to have? Now we gotta figure out how to experience that. What are the practices? What are the changes in how we think and what we do in our bodies Mm. that would help us live in the reality of God's present care and abundance? I would love to hear that sermon. We probably don't have time for it. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to hear that sermon. But I could see you as we were talking, just some hunger coming up inside of you. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and this is is what Jesus came to offer Mm. us, you know? Imagine if we could let go of all of our resentments, forgive everyone that's ever wounded us, how freeing that would be. Mm. The, the Sermon on the Mount speaks to that, yeah. right? So let's talk more about the Sermon on the Mount because this, yeah. hey. this is an area of great I'm interest, I know, for you. Yeah. Um, and this is where we can talk about Nine Beats Collective, mm-hmm. can't we? So tell me, what is Nine Beats Collective? Yeah, so I was approached, so I, uh, I wrote a book back in 2011 called Practicing the Way of Jesus. And what I've shared in the last five or 10 minutes is a little snippet of kind of the journey that that book uh, explores. And a Bible agency here in uh, London called LifeWords, uh, historically it's called Scripture Gift Mission, said, we are, uh, people don't need printed Bibles anymore as much. Everyone, if you want, if you want to look at the Bible in almost, in almost any language, it's on your smartphone. But we have a passion to have the, the words of Scripture come alive for people and we would love to do a project around the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And Mark, we think your practice and experiment approach might be really helpful. So we, they said, do you want, are you interested? And I was like, yeah. So I was at a pub, you know, a couple kilometers from here talking about this with them. And we said, let's, let's do a project about this. And my, my friend Steve at the time said, I don't feel like we're giving young people a compelling vision of an alternative life. When most young people in the UK think of Christianity, they think of something that their grandma was into or something that is even toxic, that's, that's not bringing life. Um, and yet historically, it's been this life-giving way. What if we use the Beatitudes as a lens to re- help people see again the the wonder and the potential of this new alternative way of life. Mm. And so uh, we got a a group of thought leaders together from many different backgrounds, Asian, African-American, European, UK, and um, along with musicians. And we had a chance to, this is going to sound kind of dreamy, but we went to a retreat center in Malibu, California. Oh, wow. If yeah, only, the, right? we had to give the musicians a little carrot, right? <laughs> Come to Malibu and talk about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And we spent three days together wondering and praying and listening and sharing stories and saying, what, what's the relevance of these words for today? How do they speak to the struggles we have in our world? Um, systemic struggles and also in interior struggles and how can we let them breathe life into us again today mm-hmm. and after that I was able to go away and um, create a couple of resources one's called the ninefold path and the other is the ninefold path notebook uh, learning lab which is like an experiential journey through the the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount wow. So if you want a really, what we've been saying, really practical guide yeah. to what does it mean to live the way of Jesus, those resources are, are there to help Christians to do that, I guess. Yeah, and one of my values is that I I never write something um, and put it out there in the world unless I've done it myself. Right. Okay. So I spent 15 years and then two or three more years developing practices around the Beatitudes mm. before we ever pub- publish yeah. the resource. Can you give me one or two examples? Uh, well, about worry. What's this, what, sure. how, do, how do we learn not to worry? Yeah. And um, so um, 
you know, taking taking a few minutes in the morning, being s- sitting for five minutes and being still with hands open mm-hmm. and say, I trust my life to you mm-hmm. today, creator. Here's here's what I am worried about. Mm-hmm. Hold this with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I let go of it, you know, um, as a as a strategy. Um, so we got into the Beatitudes and, you know, maybe maybe it's the nature of the complexity of scripture, but you could nerd out on trying to figure out what does this mean Mm -hmm. for a really long time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the challenge was to make it practical. And, um, I was in an office, uh, you know, on Westminster road and we're, we're banging our heads thinking, how do we, how do we do this? And, um, and suddenly I thought we we could, like there's two alternatives to everything, to, to each, each, each thing that Jesus invites us into, there's a default way that we tend to deal with those things. So let's just use the first beatitude as an example. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to be poor? Poverty is when you don't have enough or you feel like you don't have enough. Something's lacking. And when we feel like that, our first tendency is to close our hands. You can do it with me. Mm-hmm. Just grasp your hands, yep. um, squeezing at what we can get, holding on to whatever we can find, feeling stressed, feeling worried, feeling anxious. And so I think each of the Beatitudes m- kind of names a default position that we have as human beings and then an invitation into the into kingdom reality. And so for for that sense of not enoughness, that sense of worry and anxiety, that's based on a sense of scarcity. And how does it feel to be squeezing your hands like this right now? I feel all uptight. Yeah, I'm feeling <laughs> tension. And that's what worry and anxiety do inside of us. They zap our energy. And so um, Jesus is inviting us to move from that belief in scarcity to a belief in God's care, mm. presence, yeah. and abundance. Open my hands mm. to receive what I need with thanks, to ask for what I don't have that I need, and to share what I have. So it's a it's a different, you know, there's there's an alternative, the kingdom alternative mm. to our our kind of normal ways of of thinking and being. Mm. What's been the best day of your ministry and what's been the worst? Wow, interesting question. Um, uh, I I have a nightmare that occurs pretty regularly. This would be a worst, is um, that I have to be teaching in front of a group of people. This, the mic's not working. Uh, there's a lot of people and everyone's talking it's really hot and uncomfortable and I have to shout to be heard. And it actually happened two weeks ago in Bangladesh. I was on a fourth floor of a building in Dhaka with about 60 pastors and the mics going in and out, the slide project, the, you know, the video projectors not working. I imagine it was hot as well. It's 42 degrees, hundred percent humidity. (laughs) (laughs) And, I'm the only native English speaker and I'm speaking in English. Oh, wow. So I just, it's like, like the worst day (laughs) is when we can't communicate. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the worst day is when you can't communicate. When we can't connect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I I think, I think the Holy Spirit can still work even though the, you know, the conditions are bad. So I'm not going to say it's, yeah, it's a total wash. That makes sense though. I mean, so much of your, your ministry is, is communicating, is connecting with people. And so I can imagine that the nightmare scenario is when you can't do that for for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if we're talking about personal, like soul issues and, um, and, and, you know, having to go through interpreters and stuff like that. Best day happens quite a bit. And it's when I see uh, people waking up to to hope and the reality that God is here, that God cares cares for you, mm-hmm. that your life is important and has meaning. And to see when I get to see people waking up to those things. Yeah. How um, would you describe your calling? Hmm. I I sometimes describe myself as a prophetic 
teacher. So okay. there's a little bit of an edge where I want, I want us to rethink things mm. like a like a like a Hebrew prophet. Um, the organization that I founded is called Reimagine, mm-hmm. if that gives you any indication. But I don't want to be the kind of cranky prophet that just tells everybody what's, what's wrong. wrong. Yeah. Um, I I want to be a prophetic voice that I'm finding the answer myself. I'm not pointing fingers. Mm-hmm. I'm pointing the finger at myself and saying, I know we could find a, a more whole way mm-hmm. to live life with God. And I want to invite you us to discover that when all is said and done how would you like to be remembered wow deep questions um i'd like people to um say he um he seemed to really walk walk with the creator Mm. and when i was in his presence i felt like i was being cared for uh, by by the by the creator of the universe mm. th- through Mark's being. Are you um, optimistic about? I guess I want to say the future of the church, but by that I just mean the future of the number of people who are doing what you said in terms of walking with the creator. Because in both the US and the UK, a lot of the statistics are very much downward trends. Yeah, uh, a lot of talk of growing secularism. The, even the idea that someone would believe in God in many many parts <laughs> of the of the of the West is just becoming kind of uh, more and more difficult for a lot of people to grasp. They, yeah. just, can't, they just can't go there. And I yeah. know, you know you must interact and meet people like that all the time. What are, your, what are your big picture thoughts on that, on this idea that secularism is growing, uh, that the church is dying in many places? You know, are you more optimistic than some yeah. of those trends would suggest? Uh, I, I think that Christendom in the West, in, in Europe and the United States and Australia, is waning. Mm-hmm. And we're... The church is mourning that. Mm-hmm. There was a time when, uh, you know, we had dominance in politics and we were sh- shaping th- this Western society. Um, and um, we're experiencing something that's sometimes called post Christendom. I don't know that that's synonymous with authentic mm. following of the way of Jesus. Like I, when I, the way I read church history is that um, I, I think God uses all kinds of mistakes that we make with, with the message of Jesus and how we, how we've been the church. So n- nothing's irredeemable, but there's always been two tracks. Um, there's a track that um, shapes the gospel to our preferences and there's uh, an aliveness of the gospel that transforms us on a on a cellular level, right? And so, um, in every age, there have been voices and movements that do that sort of refreshing work, and I'm hopeful that that will mm. continue. Yeah, there's a perhaps a deceptively simple question that I like to ask people, and it's amazing the different responses we get to what sounds like a very simple question. But what is the gospel? Mm, I love it. Uh, Jesus said that he traveled through Galilee proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So according to Jesus, the, the good news is the reality of the kingdom of God. And um, I think Mark 1.15 that, um, might be the most succinct description of of what Jesus meant by good news. And he said four phrases. The time has come. Mm-hmm. The kingdom of God is at hand. Mm-hmm. Repent and believe this good news. So um, first first statement is about where, where we locate the creator. The time has come. This is the time of the creator's care and presence, Emmanuel. And We've human beings, and if you think about how the first people who heard Jesus say that were thinking, they probably didn't think that it was an awesome time. They're being occupied by Rome. Um, soldiers can force you to carry their packs and cook you food in your in your home. It didn't seem like the best time to live. And into that, Jesus said, "The time has come. This is the time of the Creator's activity." And that's an existential message 
I think that was true then and is true now that this moment is the moment where the creator lives and is present to us. And if we can wake up to that, it would change everything. Mm. But then he gives context by making that second statement saying the kingdom is at hand. The eternal desires of the creator of the universe are being fulfilled. Things aren't static. It's on the move. And our creator is bringing about the healing and restoration of Mm. all things, which will be completed Mm. at some time in the future. But it's active now. You can join in it. And and the way Jesus described it was it's it's a tangible reality that like, do some, there's something to do today different because the kingdom is at hand. Um, wake up to it. Seek it. Forceful men and women will lay hold of it. Um, join with, with, with what God is doing to remake and renew mm. all things. Yeah. And so there's a personal level to that of me surrendering my kingdom back to the rule of my creator. Mm-hmm. And as, as more of us do that, I think we also see systemic changes we can right. expect to see healing yeah. all around us then jesus says third statement repent which means rethink your thinking you've lived small you've lived as if god is somewhere else or god is not at work in the world you're alone you're abandoned but i'm telling you god is here god cares and god is remaking all of creation so how will you have to reorganize your life to live with this to to, to step into that and then this is key. The fourth statement is believe the good news. And in the context that Jesus said that, the words pastuo in the Greek, it connotes an active response. So this is not a passive intellectual ascent. Mm, scratch, scratch your chin. Kingdom, kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of God is at hand. Hmm, interesting idea. When Jesus or John the Baptist said the kingdom of God is at hand, people said, what should we do? Mm-hmm. And John the Baptist said, if you have two coats, give one of them away. If you have food, share it with the person who doesn't have food. This is what you do because the kingdom of God is at hand. So the gospel is about calling us into the vitality of life with God now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, um, and it's, it's a whole person response. This is why I think practice is important mm. is because um, if I told you that right now and I was telling the truth, this building is on fire. If you believed me, what would you do? I'd run out the door. Yeah. Jesus, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, is saying something like that. But it's good It's good news. It's not the building. <laughs> I should say as well, you should never run. You should walk out the building, yeah. <laughs> apparently. So I'm very sorry for giving inaccurate fire safety advice. But sorry, do carry on. So because of the reality of the kingdom, it, it makes sense to, to say yes, to respond mm, with your whole yeah. self to it. Yeah. It's a great answer to what is the gospel. Um, I'm aware as well, though, it's... It's it's so much broader and arguably a little bit more in depth. I don't want to say complicated, but more in depth mm-hmm. than perhaps um, the way you first heard the gospel. I love yes. what you said earlier about you had four or five different conversion yeah. experiences. But thinking back to that first one, you said you prayed the sinner's prayer, yeah. which is basically I'm I've sinned. I'm sorry for what I've done wrong. I trust in Jesus. Yeah, is that still the kind of prayer that you would encourage someone to pray if they wanted to follow Jesus, or or would you be more concerned about going into the depth you just did yeah just now with with answering that question what is the gospel so let me let me first suggest that though that um when paul or the apostles shared the good news of jesus it says he uh it says paul preached the kingdom of god and taught about jesus christ i think most people who identify as Christians today know about Jesus Christ. They were taught about Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. But we haven't done a good job of proclaiming the the present reality of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And we live up to the story we live under. So if my, I would call it, it's not an untrue gospel, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's a the the first gospel I heard was one that was about the future mm-hmm. and one about my individual 
reconciliation with God. You want to go to heaven when you die, that sort of thing. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. But if I live in a limited amount, if I have a limited understanding of the story, I'm going to only live up to that part of the story. And I think that's partly responsible for why we... Um, why we don't see mm. more Christ likeness yeah. is because we, we're not telling each other about the potential. Yes, <laughs> I, um, I I have this idea that that all of us as as human beings, but certainly all of us as as Christians, we each live in our individual culture, cultural context, if you mm-hmm. like. And because culture is so all pervading, we can't understand or even see our, what our blind spots are because it's just normal, mm. it's culture. Until, of course, you meet someone from another country yeah. and you start talking and you think, oh, actually, you think differently to me yeah, on yeah, this yeah. issue. Or actually, you know, even more than that, as a Christian, you live out your faith differently yeah. because uh, perhaps I'm just I'm just uh, taken by the culture I'm in. I haven't realized this is not the way of Jesus like I thought it was. This is just the kind of Christian culture I've, I've been brought yeah. up in. So I'd love to hear from, from you as someone who's not, British, because you've done lots of traveling uh, and speaking yeah. in this country. What are the things you've noticed where you think, actually, I think British Christians are being more influenced by their culture, either the culture of the world or the culture of the church, than yeah. they are what really following Jesus means. So this is your opportunity yeah. to be... Let me say something your kind. Invi- your invitation, yeah. your invitation say, to be gently critical. Let me say something <laughs> kind first. Okay. Uh, I enjoy um, being in the UK and noticing that you all do not have the same binaries when it comes to uh, like being an evangelical charismatic Christian and caring about issues of justice right. yeah. and climate change in my country. You um, like we're very siloed and segmented and one group doesn't even consider the other to be a, a real authentic person of faith. And so the, there, there's a much more both and that I find really fascinating that you can be uh, you can be speaking in tongues and love ardent worship and be really concerned about how we're caring for the creation and about refugees you know all those things matter right mm-hmm. and uh, that's beautiful um, something I uh, I often hear my friends in the UK say is that um, they're really, this is a post-Christian country. And um, I have a little hobby of pointing out all the signs that I see of, of Christian faith from, you know, that you can, you can tune into BBC four and hear people talking about faith Mm -hmm. on what what I would call public radio. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't happen in the United States. Right. Yeah. So, there's definitely something interesting mm. um, going on there uh, with that. You can't you can hardly walk by a building in central London without there being a, a Bible verse on the <laughs> yeah on the front door, right? Yeah, I guess a lot of those things are are there and are historic, I suppose, in, yeah. in the architecture. Yeah, um, but it's true. I mean, if you walk into our our parliament, then there's a you walk into central lobby, there is literally a Bible verse you know, ingrained into the architecture of the floor of Central yeah. Lobby, which is where all the politicians meet. So so you're right, there is a lot of yeah. inbuilt. And you could argue that we're, um, we're withdrawing from a thousand-year history of Christian influence. Mm-hmm. And so even if we're not depositing as much now, there was a lot to draw from that is renewing sure. mm-hmm. um, culture. Uh, I try and remind my kids, because uh, I, I live somewhere where I think 90 percent of people don't believe in the existence of a divine being and i say i say i know 99 percent of people you know don't believe in god but 99.9 percent of human beings that have ever lived <laughs> have believed yes in a, in yeah. a creator yeah. so we should weigh that okay so here's here's the um uh, my my word to the church in the uk is to move from a posture of chin scratching, <laughs> of wonderings, uh, like I mean, and that's maybe a historical gift is that is this, uh, you know, the Oxford Cambridge kind of scholarly approach to things. Apparently, my accent makes me sound intelligent to Americans, is what I've been told. Oh before. yes, you get fifteen <laughs> IQ points right off the top there, but. 
Um, but faith is personal. Yeah. And so rather than us looking out on something, I think we, we should jump right in together. Take, be bold. Mm. Take some risks. And rather than posturing about it, let's get, get our hands dirty. Yeah. And that's, that's where the future of our faith vitality is. That's a wonderfully encouraging and provocative note to end on. Yeah. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, it's been great to be with you, Sam. I'm Sam Howes. You have been listening to my conversation with Mark Scandrat. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Profile this afternoon. It's been great to have your company. And don't forget, if you are listening live on Premier Christian Radio, this show is also available as a podcast, meaning you can get a new episode every single week direct to your phone or wherever you normally listen to podcasts. If you want to get The Profile as a podcast, just go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. We'll be back same time, same place next week with another great interview for you. Until then, have a very Merry Christmas.